Turn again with me, please, to Colossians 3, if you have your Bible with you. And as you do that, let's pray together and seek the Lord's blessing. Father, we are grateful this morning for the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom and in your kindness to us, you have given us your truth as an anchor for our souls, as guidance for our lives, as hope for our eternity. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would cause the truth of your word to be effectual in shaping our hearts this morning, filling us with greater love for you and one another, granting us greater insight and conformity to the mind of Christ, that we would think your thoughts, Lord, that we would desire the things you desire, and that we would do the things that please you, and that we would believe that which is true. I pray, Lord, you would help us this morning to have minds fixed on you, and that you would open the eyes of our heart to behold more of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I remember the summer of 2002. Uh, I was so excited. I had been looking forward for some time to being in high school. And at that point, it was just a couple weeks away. And I was particularly excited because my older brothers and my cousins, who I'm very close with, were all at the same high school. And I had never been in the same school with all of them at once. But I'll never forget the first day of school sitting in Mr. Ziadi's French class. And he was going through the attendance, and he made his way through the A's, and then he got to the B's, and he got to my name. And he said, Joshua Brown. And he looked up to give a visual check, and I said, here. And he paused, and then said, are you the brother of Adam and Michael Brown, and the cousin of Matthew and Michelle Lawrence? And I could tell he was hoping that I would say no. <laughs> but I said, yes, I am. And his frame visibly sunk. It was, I'll never forget it. That was my first day of high school. And, uh, and so what I didn't realize going into high school was that my siblings and my cousins who went before me had made something of a reputation for our family. And this teacher, Mr. Ziadi, had taught all four of those and my sister before. Uh, and so I was coming in the wake of a reputation that had been made. And the reputation, to be honest and frank, wasn't a good one. Uh, we were known as somewhat of an unruly bunch, uh, too social and talkative in class, and too given to influencing other students uh, towards disobedience and just kind of horseplay. And that's how my career as a high schooler began. But I didn't know about that reputation on my first day. I got acquainted with it over time, over the course of the next few months. I got to know more teachers and students that were familiar with my siblings and my cousins. And based on the fact that I was a brown, I had a certain expectation to live up to, uh, for good or for ill. Uh, my oldest brother was known simply as that brown. All of his friends, just they never called him Mike or Michael. He was known as Brown, and that's what all of his friends called him, and even some teachers. 
Uh, and so when I came at being the youngest in my family at that school at the time, I got the name Young Brown. That was like my nickname. I was the you know, little version of my brother. And for me, you know, I was happy to be there. I was happy to be with my, my siblings and my cousins. And so for me, it was something of a, a badge of honor. I, you know, I belonged to this recognized group that people knew about, apparently. And I was viewed by many in light of my relationship to that group, my family, and especially my older brother. And as I look back, and as I've thought back about my high school years uh, over recent times, uh, I realized how much that identity had a strong shaping influence in my behavior throughout my high school career. It was though I had a role already established for me that I was meant to walk into and fulfill. And over the course of my high school career, I gradually grew into that role. I was a brown, and that reality shaped so much about me and my behavior, how I dressed, how I spoke, how seriously or you know, frivolous, frivolously I approached schoolwork and class attendance. Um, so I understood myself to take on a new identity when I walked into that school. And over time, I embraced the lifestyle and behavior that came with that identity. My high school, question, my high school experience begs the question, what is the relationship between identity and behavior? In my experience in that time, the one shaped the other. What I understood to be my identity shaped the way I saw the world and interacted with it, my behavior. And that's the same reality that we're going to see here in our passage in Colossians 3. Last week, we looked at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, where Paul goes on in detail about the glories of our new identity in Christ. As those who have been risen with the sin and death-defeating, conquering Jesus, who is now at the right hand of God, seated, having finished his work, and now in the place of honor and authority in heaven. We have been freed from the penalty of the law and given in Christ indestructible life that will finally culminate in our everlasting glory with him. That is who a Christian is. That is our identity as believers. And in our passage today, we're going to see the sort of life, the kind of behavior and speech that flows from that new identity that we have as believers. We will see the process of appropriating, of laying hold of our new identity and appropriating it into our everyday lives, both as individuals and also as a local community in a local church. And what we'll see is that this process involves three major activities in our lives. The first is this, putting off the old self. The second, putting on the new self. And lastly, living as the new community. We're going to spend most of our time on that first point. So if it seems like it's going long, don't worry, the other two will be shorter. So let's read our passage together. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first thing that Paul addresses when it comes to appropriating our new identity into our day-to-day lives is this. Put off the old self. You see that there in in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Last week we reflected on the reality that our Savior has triumphed over death and sin. And our identity as having been raised with him by faith in his finished work is the core reality that is meant to shape our behavior. That's the reason why Paul in that first verse uses the word, therefore. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It is in light of the glorious realities of verses 1 through 4 that we are being called to live in a particular way, in a heavenly way. So verses 1 to 4 exist to portray an image that we see when we look in the mirror. We see what we are like because we are in Christ. And so when we look in 1 to 4, we see what Christ is like. And in a sense, we are seeing an image of ourselves that we are meant to reflect. And then here in verses 5 through 17 and beyond are the behaviors that are fitting, that are commensurate with that image. There is, however, much opposition to us living out this pattern of life established by Christ. Just as there was much opposition to he himself living his life. So there's some violent language in this opening verse. This new life is meant to be seized with a sort of violence by the Christian. All of us who are believers have been born again into the kingdom of God with a past life that has left a residue behind on our souls. We have lived lives, whether for five years or 50 years, with our sinful hearts governing our desires, governing our ambitions, our words, and our actions. We have, over time, before coming to Christ, trained our mind and our body to follow the leadings of our hearts. And like muscle memory, Even after the heart has been changed by the gospel, the members of our body still incline us to some of the same behaviors that formerly dominated us. 
sort of like a chicken with its head cut off. In the gospel, the life blood, the life power of sin has been severed from us. But it is now through that same gospel that we must apply the power to stop it from running wild, headless. It's for this reason that we must apply utter seriousness and even, to borrow from the language here, a sort of violence, putting to death and daily rehearsing our newness in Christ as a means of putting those old ways behind us. And that's what Paul calls for here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The truth of Scripture, such as we're looking, you know, for example, like what we're looking at here, are meant to be the artillery, the, the weaponry with which we assault those inclinations of our heart towards sin when it raises its head. The glorious realities of who God is, what he has done for his people in Christ by rescuing us, and the great privileges and promises that God has given to his children are the weaponry that the Spirit of God within us uses to kill every lagging impulse of our former selves. And this new identity, unlike the ceremonial laws that were being promoted by false teachers in chapter 2, these ones have a shaping effect not only on our outward behaviors, but also on the inner desires and attitudes of our hearts. So Paul in this section lists two sets of sins. There's two short lists, both of them with five different things mentioned that Christians are to put to death or to do away with on a daily basis. And the first one has to do with personal sins. And the second list has to do with sins of speech towards others. So in the first list, Paul especially emphasizes our sexual behavior. These are the sins which Paul says are especially heinous since they are sins we commit against our own bodies which have now in our new identity become the dwelling place of God's Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so Paul first highlights these personal sins which are to be put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, this, of course, is not an exhaustive list of personal sins, because we see elsewhere in Paul's writings and others in the New Testament many other things that Christians are called to flee from, many other personal sins that Christians are called to avoid and reject. But in this list in particular, what happens is we gain insight into how all different kinds of sin work in our heart and come to fruition, being birthed in our hearts and then enacting themselves through our members. And so we can take the insights that we gain from this list that we're going to see, and we can apply these insights to all the various sins that we find ourselves wrestling against and struggling with. So I want us to notice the relationship between these five sins mentioned here what you'll see is that Paul travels, kind of, if you're picturing a plant or a tree, Paul travels from the branches or the leaves all the way down to the root. There's this progression from the branches or the leaves down to the root. So he goes from the, the behavior itself down to the root or the first cause, the thing that is the impetus originally for that behavior. 
And, and by doing this, by giving us this picture, what he's doing is giving us a template that we can under, understand how our heart works and manifests itself in different sinful behaviors. And we can apply what we learn here to the various sins that we must put to death in our lives. So look how he begins. He starts with sexual immorality, which is to say any sexual act that is not ordained by God. God has ordained that sexual activity is meant to be exclusively participated in by one man and one woman in marriage. All other forms of sexual activity are forbidden, and therefore participation in them is immoral. So Paul says to put to death all immoral sexual activity. But then he goes a little further and helps us to understand what is it that inclines us to such immoral or forbidden activities. And so the second in the list is impurity. We read these words in Mark chapter 7. If you remember, uh, Peter had read this to us uh, not too long ago. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And Paul's stating that same reality here in Colossians. He's going behind the actual behavior, the sexually immoral behavior, to the thing that pushes us towards that behavior. It's the impurity of our hearts that lead us to the impure, immoral behaviors that God forbids. But then he takes it even a step further to passion. That's what's underneath even this impurity in our hearts, is this passion. It's almost like this animalistic, unruly instinct that exists within all of us. That can be sparked at any time and feed the impure thoughts of our mind which lead to the immoral actions. And undergirding this passion, he's working his way down, undergirding this passion is a desire for evil. That's the next thing in the list, evil desire. That's what's at the foundation of our fallen nature. It's this desire within us to go outside the bounds of God's established order for us. And again, though the gospel has transformed us and given us new life, there still exists in us this remnant, at least this potential remnant from our old pre-converted state which needs to be put to death. And the foundations of this evil desire, our, our desire to pursue and partake of what God has put outside the limit of righteousness is covetousness. This is the sin that's at the root of not only sexual sin as is made plain in this list, but all sin. It's a desire for what God has forbidden. It's, it's the sin that calls God's character into question. And it seeks what God has forbidden as, as though it's something worthy of being pursued and therefore makes God's judgment of good and evil, of right and wrong, seem foolish and immoral. Why would a good God deprive me of something that seems so evidently good and enjoyable? Surely his assessment is wrong. And so I'll go after that thing which God has told me to refrain from. 
That's the thought process of covetousness. And this thinking seeks to dethrone God from his place of authority as the good, wise ruler who has the prerogative to direct his creatures in the way that he deems best. This is why Paul calls it idolatry. That's the last thing there. An idol is anything that we put in the place that belongs to God alone. It's the person or the idea that we submit to as ruler and governor of our desires and actions. And in this instance, it is an idolizing of one's own self. When we redefine God or treat uh, our own fallen hearts as God, we then covet those things which the true and living God, the wise and good God, the one who made us and knows what's best for us, we pursue the things that he has forbidden. Our coveting then leads to evil desires, which sparks our passions and defiles our hearts, making them impure, ultimately leading to the immoral behavior. This is how sin works in our hearts. And therefore, to put sin to death, as we are commanded to do in verse 5, we must regularly be severing it at its root, the root of idolatry. We must be subjecting all of our thoughts about God to what he has revealed of himself in Scripture. And having right thoughts about him, we must subject our head, our heart, and our hands to him. He is the one true God who has rescued us in the gospel. And he is daily rewiring our thoughts through his word so that we might have a proper view of him and consequently live in accordance with his character. And so we must understand that reading the scriptures every day and praying are much more than mere spiritual disciplines that we check off of our list in our day. But in fact, what we're doing when we're opening the Bible and when we're praying is we are participating in the process by which we wage war on our sinful desires and embrace more of the realities of the heavenly life that we are called to in Christ. The knowledge of God is the most important knowledge that we must pursue every day. The knowledge of God is the most important knowledge that we must pursue every day. As it is with this knowledge that we wield the power to sever our idolatry and the consequent desires and behaviors that follow from it. And the first thing that Paul wants to inform us with regards to our knowledge of God is the fact that God hates sin. So much so, in fact, that he will unleash his wrath on those who live in it. That's what he says there after the list. He says, on account of these things, these sins that I have just listed, the wrath of God is coming. This God that we discover in the Bible is so different than us. The word the Bible uses to describe that difference is holy. He is of such a different character and moral excellence that it is beyond us to fathom the extent of his purity. And that may be the reason that we dabble in the things that he forbids, seeing them as not that big of a deal. Yeah, they're, they're bad, but not so bad. But this is the God that is described in Scripture as he who dwells in inapproachable light. 
who says, who, whose ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. And the higher that we ascend in our hearts through the word of God to see things from God's perspective, we will understand why sin is such an offense to him. This God is the eternal, infinitely pure ruler of all that he has created. And for his creation to rebel against him is therefore a crime worthy of eternal, infinitely harsh penalty, which is exactly what it receives. God will pour out his wrath on those who embrace anarchy and seek to subvert his lordship over this world and over our hearts. But to those who have tasted of his infinitely great mercy and have known his love through the gospel, we desire to walk a different path. We desire to follow and be like him. And that's who Christians are. Not those who are morally superior to others because they are more rigid at following some moral code. No. We are those who have experienced superior grace and mercy than others. And so that's why Paul says next, in these two, these sins, you all once walked when you were living in them. These Christians, like all of us, were born in sin. They were born rebellious and at odds with God. They lived to satisfy their sinful desires, whatever they may be. But they had been purchased by God at the cost of his son's life, that they may be born again and adopted into his family. They had experienced the deep, deep love of God in the gospel, and that is the foundational motive for putting off sin. When one has a perfect father who loves them perfectly and unconditionally, the last thing they want to do is disappoint him or go after those things that he hates. And that is why Paul is holding up this glorious truth. These believers have been so loved by God so as to be redeemed from their sinful lives and granted all the blessings of God in Christ. That's what he says in chapter 1. He says, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this becomes the fuel and the motivation to violently put to death our sinful desires and pursue a holy, a heavenly life. Not only in the sinful behaviors, the personal ones, but also in the social sinful behaviors that lead us to sin against others with our speech. And that's what Paul addresses in this next list of sins that, that we as new creatures are to do away with. Read with me here. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul is here addressing the way in which we interact with others through our words. And he does in this list... The inverse, the, the reverse of what he did in the first list. In the first list, he worked up, he worked from the action itself down to the root of idolatry. And in this list, he works in the opposite direction, from the root up to the actual words 
that we say. And so the first one here, anger. I want you to consider with me for a second why someone might become angry in response to somebody else. There is, of course, described in the scriptures a righteous anger, an anger at things that God is angry about. But here, Paul is talking about a sinful anger that we are, so, we are to put away. So, so what might be the cause, the, the, the cause of this sort of sinful anger that we respond to people with that leads to sinning with our speech? I would guess that it has something to do with us having too high a view of ourselves and therefore take offense at the things said to us, which leads us to eventually respond sinfully in our speech. And so here in this list, as he's working from the root upwards, uh, we see by implication there is a sense of idolatry at the root of this list as well, an esteeming of ourselves to a place beyond what is fitting. A person who is dead to the criticisms and opinions of the world cannot be offended by the words of the world. And Christians are called to be dead in that sense. And so to respond with offense and to respond with anger would demonstrate that we have remnants of our old self still yet to be put off, as Paul commands. And then this anger, going to the next in the list, leads to wrath. Similar to that animalistic instinct of evil desire in the first list, this is a deep-seated rage towards those we are angry at. And it travels up further from the root to malice, a general sense of evil intention towards someone. It's now zooming in on a particular person. And once this malice reaches our mouth, it comes out as slander. That's the same word that's often translated in the New Testament, blasphemy, to defame someone with our speech. And then it further results, next on the list, in obscene talk from your mouth. So instead of having the truth and the grace of God as the governor of our speech to others, which if it were, would lead us to respond to others and interact with others in line with what it says in Ephesians 4, which is this. Let no corrupting talk, corrupting talk, that's the same word here translated obscene talk. Let no obscene talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We idolize ourselves, which leads us to take ungodly offense and then, and then respond with ungodly words. So we see in both of these lists, that our main daily target in our battle for holiness and embracing and appropriating the fullness of the life of Christ in us is idolatry. When we have a wrong view of God and as a result a wrong view of ourselves, that is where these sins enter into our hearts and then our behavior. And we must be daily cleansing our hearts and our mind with the truth of who our Heavenly Father is and what thoughts and behaviors ought to characterize us as those who belong to His family and, has, and have been given His name. And the last thing that Paul lists that we are to put off in order to be faithful is lying. Look in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. 
Since God himself is the source of truth and not only doesn't lie, but according to Hebrews 6, it is impossible for him to lie. We likewise, as his people, are called to speak the truth at all times. But I want you to notice the shift in verb tense attached to this command as, a, as opposed to the earlier command in verse 8. So he goes from saying, put away these things, present tense, and now here he's saying, do not lie because you have put off the old self, past tense. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, that relationship is crucial in our understanding of the Christian life. We must never understand our daily efforts to live holy lives as the means by which we clothe ourselves with the righteousness that God requires. That mentality, that framework of thinking will lead either to pride or despair, depending on how we judge ourselves to be doing in that quest. Instead, we must be convinced that through faith in the gospel, we have already been disrobed of our old sinful nature as the dominant influence of our behavior and have already been clothed with the new self, which is made in the image and the holiness of God. This positional or declared righteousness before God becomes the strength by which we work out our salvation in our daily lives. This is why in chapter 1, Paul says that our ability to live lives that are pleasing to God is as a result of us, quote, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, not our own. And this might that God imparts to us, he does so through knowledge. That's the next thing that Paul says. You have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It is as we get to know God, the being, the person, the quality and characteristics, the loves and hates, the desires and wills that we put off on righteousness in practice, just as we've already had it put off of us through the gospel. And this cleansing, along with all of the blessings that come with it, apply equally to all who are in Christ. This is the ultimate solution to divisions in the church. And it's also the reason why ultimate unity outside of the gospel is impossible. And I think that this is a truth that we as a church ought to be especially eager to display, given the times in which we live where there are so many foolish solutions to divisions that are being put forth outside of the church. Paul says that it's our common bond to Christ and our common love for Christ which binds us together as a church. In verse 11 he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The false teachers in chapter 2 that we spent more time looking at last week, sought to raise up or put down people in the church based on certain behavior or ethnic qualities or conformity to certain religious traditions. And that is the breeding ground of animosity between Christians and church splits 
But here instead, Paul highlights a unity in the church that results not from who we are or to which group we belong, but from our common Savior and the common object of our worship. We are all stamped with His image and His worth in our new identity. And we all seek above all to worship Him and make much of Him. Those two factors are what unify a church to love one another well, to avoid sinful speech about one another, and to live holy lives unto God for His glory and for the benefit of others. And so Paul calls us to this daily work of putting off the old self in its ways by renewing our minds with the Word of God, growing in our knowledge of Him, and putting to death the idols that, we, that have led us away from the lives we've been called to in Christ. Thomas Chalmers, in a great sermon uh, titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, says these words. There are two ways one may attempt to remove from the human heart its love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart will be convinced to simply withdraw its regard from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment so that the heart will be convinced not to resign an old affection which will have nothing to replace it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. And this is what we look at now. Having commanded us to put off our old self, Paul then holds up the attractiveness of the uniform that we have in Christ and tells us, put that on. So that's the second point. Put on the new self. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul wants us to know the great privilege of being part of the family of God. Because it's as we feel this deep sense of privilege and how undeserving we are of it, that we long to glorify the one who has so privileged us. Our seat at the family table in the kingdom of God is not owing to our quality or our qualifications. In fact, it has nothing to do with us. Paul says that we are chosen to have this honor. God is the only being in the universe that makes decisions and acts in a way that is not ultimately subject to anything outside of himself. But instead, he does what he does according to the counsel of his own will, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. God did not look at you and see some great attributes or think, hey, there's someone with some real potential. And like a sports team owner, draft you to his team for all the things that you can do for his kingdom. No. For no other reason than that he wanted you. That he loved you. Did God set his affections on you. Think about that for a second. You were chosen. You, the infinitely holy God of the universe, who needs nothing and needs no one, chose freely to make you his son, to make you his daughter. You, me, 
living in sin, idolizing ourselves, and following the sinful inclinations of our fallen heart, He freely chose you to be His very own. And He paid the highest price to have you. He sacrificed His only begotten Son. The only one who was actually worthy of His affections. The only one who actually reflected perfectly His character. He gave that Son, Jesus, up to a terrible death under His wrath to make you His own and care for you for all time and eternity. This is an amazing God. This is a a beautiful heart of love. This is a gracious and merciful Savior. It is a blessing to not only know of this being, but to be loved by Him and to know Him personally. Don't you want to be just like Him? That's the effect that meeting God in the Gospel has on a heart. We have experienced so deeply the beauty of His character and have benefited both now and for all eternity from His grace towards us in Christ that we genuinely desire to be like Him. I mean, who wouldn't? This God is amazing. And that's exactly what Paul is calling us to in these following verses. This is why he calls us holy, that is, set apart for God's purpose. He is calling us to be just like our Father, just like our older brother, Jesus. Jesus has become for us Christians not only our Savior, who has led us into the family of God, but also our example of what it means to be part of the family. Jesus said in John 14, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So the gospel fills our hearts with love for God and overwhelms us with the desire to make much of him. And in the life of Christ, we see a blueprint for doing just that. Put on then as God's chosen one, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I want us to notice simply this. I want us to notice that each of these qualities in this list are ones that we see embodied in Jesus throughout the pages of the New Testament. Compassionate hearts, Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Kindness, Ephesians 2, 7. In the gospel, God has shown us the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Humility, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meekness, 2 Corinthians 10.1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Patience, 1 Timothy 1.16. But I received, Paul speaking, but I received Mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Bearing with one another, Luke 9, 
A man comes asking for healing. And though Jesus is saddened uh, about the faithlessness and the hard-heartedness of the world, this is how he responds. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be, uh, to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. He was heartbroken over their faithlessness, but yet he bore with them. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of the life of God enfleshed in a human frame. Since that is exactly what he is. He is truly God and truly man. And this list, not being an exhaustive list of all the qualities and behaviors that ought to characterize us as Christians, is meant to lead us to a specific conclusion. The life of a Christian is meant to be a reflection of the life of Christ. That becomes explicit in this last quality on the list. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We who have known the joy of forgiveness and have traced that glorious gift up to its source, the Savior Jesus Christ, are meant to behold Him and all of His other stunning virtues and make that the pattern of our lives. So we might answer all questions about the moral and ethical pattern that Paul is calling us to with this question. What would Jesus do? It's a cliche term that can be wrongly understood, but I think, in fact, it is one that is very useful and practical. There are certain things, of course, that Jesus did that we can't do. We can't atone for someone's sin. We can't command the winds and the waves to obey our will. We can't see into the hearts of people. But as we read the pages of Scripture and behold how Jesus lived and interacted with people, what he valued and what he hated, what he prioritized, what he taught, how he prayed, what he believed, what he lived for, these become for us the blueprint of our own lives. Colossians 2 says that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And it is by seeking Christ that we grow in our understanding of this blueprint for the Christian life, since he himself is the blueprint. And this blueprint can be summed up, I think, in the great commandment that Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's essentially the same way that Paul sums up his call in verse 14 of Colossians 3. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Behold and define love by the scriptures. Then love God and everyone you come into contact with, with all your heart. That's the Christian life in a sentence. Behold and define love by the scriptures and then love God with all your heart and love every person you come into contact with. Now lastly, Paul tells us how this life that is given to put into death the remnant of our old selves and modeling our new life after the example of Christ manifests in the context of a community. That's our last point. Live as a new community. Until this point, Paul has been mainly addressing the individual members of the congregation in Colossae. He has been calling them to live in the fullness of their new life in Christ. And now we see how a group of individuals who are pursuing and walking in this newness of life looks when they are together. 
It's a community overflowing with gratitude to God for all he has done. And these thankful hearts manifest firstly as a community permeated with peace. Verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The, the peace of Christ is meant to permeate the hearts of each individual member in this church. And as a result, characterize the church as a whole. They were called to be one body, the body of Christ, and as such, they experience the peace of Christ. And this peace is a result of a few things. First, they have all been reconciled to God through the gospel. Their deepest need has been met in Christ, and they have peace with God. Secondly, as they live as a community that governs all their decisions by the word and truth of God, they know a deep sense of peace that comes from being in the will of the supreme being of the universe that cannot be defeated. This peace isn't based on circumstances or lack of persecution that they may experience at any given time. This is the unshakable peace that comes from abiding with Christ and the presence of Christ abiding with them among his people. John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then a couple chapters later in John 16, Jesus said these words, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will all be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' peace was rooted in his relationship to his Father. That even though every person would turn their back on him, even his closest friends and disciples, he remained in communion with his Father and therefore knew peace. This is the peace that the church has. Even though all the world should turn their back on us or even persecute us, we are not alone. God is with us and therefore our hearts can be at peace. Lastly, this is a relational peace among the members of this church. Paul uses the imagery of a body, bringing into mind the essential unity that the members of a body must have with the rest of the members of the body in order for it to function. The human body is designed in such a way that necessitates the cooperation of all its members with one another and each member's submission to the direction of the brain. And in the same way, each member of the church must be first submitted to the head of the church, Jesus, and will by extension experience a peace and synergy relationally as we work together to seek to know and serve our chief shepherd. And seeing as submission to the authority of Christ is central to our peace, it makes sense that next, Paul emphasizes the role of the word of Christ in the church. There can be no knowledge of the gospel, no knowledge of God's nature, and no knowledge of our calling as Christians and churches without the word of God. And so he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The word of Christ first dwells in each of us as individuals, then becomes the subject of our conversations and instructions to one another, and the fuel for our ever-deepening gratitude. This stresses the tremendous importance of yours and my regular study of and meditation upon the word of God. 
I need to study not only in order to be filled with God's life-giving and life-ordering truth for myself, but I need you to be regularly meeting with God in order that you might be a faithful friend and fellow church member to me. In the design of God, I am not meant to thrive in my life as a disciple on my own. I need instruction and counsel from you to help me along the way. And you won't be able to give me wise counsel if you yourself aren't regularly digging into the scriptures and meditating upon its significance for everyday life. Without that, we are reduced to nice-sounding pep talks that don't point each other's hearts to Christ and don't fill our souls with true hope and power to live for Him. So we must soak in the Word of Christ and have the Word of Christ saturate our hearts and minds so that when we open our mouths, God comes out and not just our opinions. It is great that we can have small talk about common interests and vacations and weekend plans and work. Those are great, truly. They help us to bond as friends and develop deeper relationships. But more than anything, what we need from each other as fellow church members is the Word of God. Every day, our souls are assaulted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Everything is at odds with us and is against us holding fast to our confession of faith in Christ. And we need each other to be speaking life-giving, soul-refreshing, conviction-deepening word, a word of God, if we are to be faithful to continuing the fight every day. So be intentional about reading, meditating, and even committing the word of God to memory so that you will always be ready to give a brother or sister the encouragement they need from the scriptures. And since God's word is so central to the life of the church, it's fitting that Paul extends its influence to the songs we sing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We might prefer one instrument over another or one genre over another, and that's fine. There's certainly a place for those preferences. But more important than anything else is that the songs and hymns and spiritual songs that rise up from this congregation be jam-packed with the Word of Christ. They must reveal Christ to us just as He's revealed in the Word of God. They must fill our mouths with praises that are fitting for this God and in accordance with His truth. This is the ultimate measure of our music. Is it scriptural? Does it have the same effect on our hearts and lead us to think about God and act towards God in the same way that reading our Bible does? This is God's intended purpose for our music. Whether we sing inside or outside, whether we sing a cappella or with accompanying instruments, whether you have a great voice like Marion or a terrible voice like me, May the songs that arise from this congregation always be full of the word of Christ and arise from hearts that are full of love to God and gratitude toward him. And lastly, Paul concludes his section by tying everything together in one final all-encompassing command. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is to be the great measure of all our actions and speech. This is the culmination of all that we've seen in this passage. In this section, Paul gives just a sampling of certain behaviors and speech that ought to typify a believer and others that should be found nowhere among us. 
These act simply as a template by which we approach these questions. They teach us essentially these two truths. Kill the idolatry in our hearts that lead us to all types of different sins and follow the example of Christ that lead us to all types of different virtues. Here, Paul spreads the net further and shows that he means for us to apply this template to every single aspect of our lives. Whatever you do, he says, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means all of our actions and words are meant to be judged by this metric. Is this a faithful representation of my Savior? We, as those privileged to have a place in the family of God, now have a role in this world as ambassadors of Christ, through which he will call more of his lost children to himself. And just as you and I are beneficiaries of the words and actions that Christians in our lives exhibited, so we too are to be a blessing to those around us as we reflect the good news and the good character of our God. And so, the standard at all times in our minds, as we, go about our day, as we go about our day and determine what to say and what not to say, what to participate in and what to refrain from, is this. What decision will most help those around me have a clear understanding of what God is like? That is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We are disciplined followers of Jesus. We discipline our mind and the members of our body conform to the pattern set by the one we are following. And all of this, our desire and our ability to do this, is a result of the gracious work of Christ in the gospel. He has ransomed us, that is, purchased us from our old slave master of sin who, who sought our destruction. And he has made us God's children who have an eternal inheritance in the glorious kingdom of God. And while we labor here below, we labor to make much of this great God. So now, I have a deeper-rooted identity than young Brown. I am now meant to act as a young Jesus, looking to the example of my big brother, who leads me with his grace and truth into everlasting joy in his kingdom. May you and I gladly follow the path that he has set for us and live in the abundant fullness of the life that he has purchased for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your great care for us. Thank you for saving us and laying hold of us and leading us by your word all the way home to our everlasting dwelling place in your presence. Lord, use your word this morning to shape our hearts and fuel us toward you. Cause your spirit to be effectual in producing true and genuine worship in heartfelt obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.